This is a CBC podcast. There's something about the new year that makes me think about change. Like, I should exercise more. I should spend less time staring at my phone. I really should do a better job at staying in touch with my friends. But the reality is, you just don't have control over change in your life. Things happen. Unexpected things. Change that you just didn't plan for. And it can turn you upside down. Or it could turn out to be the very thing you needed all along. I'm Duncan McHugh. And this is a hell of a story. Today I've got two stories for you. They both begin with a big secret. The kind that forces big change and ultimately new beginnings. First, here's the CBC's Michelle Parisi with a story about how a blind side sent her on an unexpected journey. My dad's been touring Italy with his lovely girlfriend, and we've arranged to meet up with them in his hometown. They're there at the train station when we arrive. The town is small and high in the mountains. It's more rugged here compared to Rome, more pastoral. The air is fresher, the people a little rougher around the edges at first, and the food is out of this world. My dad is overjoyed to have his two granddaughters here in the place he was born. He makes us do all the things you have to do when you're with my dad in Calabria. Go to the cemetery, pass by the church my grandparents were married in, sit on the bench outside his aunt's home, and listen to her and the other old ladies from the town talk and talk while drinking the world's strongest café. Here's the house he was born in, and look, in the sitting room, there's a trap door that leads to the cellar, where the goat and the chicken would go each night so they wouldn't get stolen or eaten by dogs. And here's the world's best water at Sant'Angelo, my dad's favorite spring, high in the mountains, above his already high in the mountains town. It tastes just like water, but he thinks it's the best. And now we have our feet in the sea. Isn't this the best? (laughs) He wasn't always this way. There were years after my parents' divorce that things were not the best at all. He made a lot of mistakes, and his relationship with me and my siblings suffered. For almost 10 years, we kept our distance. Many years later, my dad returned to us a completely different man. My sister and I called him the new dad because he was so much less judgmental and hard, so much more involved in our lives and in our children's lives. It's such a gift to have the new dad shouting, Isn't this the best? We go to my family's farm, a place that is actually, to me, the best in every way possible. It's one of my favorite places on earth, and the girls fall in love with it too. We pick figs and yellow plums off trees. We pluck flowers off zucchinis, gathering them in our skirts for me to fry up later for a snack. 
I imagine all the generations of women in our family doing this exact thing in this exact spot. And it is here that I'm finally able to think of things other than my husband's betrayal and the splintering of my heart. Here, I'm able to enjoy how my daughter, a city kid through and through, is expertly picking figs by twisting them at the base before pulling. Or how my niece, in her two short shorts, is carrying a basket of vegetables on her head as she traverses the steep countryside, like it could be 50 years ago, or even 100. At the farm, I feel like there's a purpose to this all. There's a reason to love, even if it means loss. On the very last day, the husband phones. As soon as I hear his voice, everything becomes choppy waves. I'm pulled under again, gone with the undertow. I cry. Not just regular crying, but the kind that comes from another time and space altogether. I can hear the uncomfortable clinking of cutlery in the next room where my family sits, trying to eat lunch while I explode from my insides out. I know the girls can hear me, but I can't stop. They're just kids and they shouldn't have to hear this, but I can't stop. I pull it together enough to sneak out the back door, grabbing my purse as I do. I walk around to the other side of the house and sit on a stoop, facing the mountains. I light a cigarette, even though it's daytime and anyone can catch me. I take in the cigarette smoke and the fresh mountain air. And for the first time in my life, I don't want to go home. I want to sit right here forever and turn to dust. And then my dad rounds the corner. He mercifully says nothing about the cigarette in my hand. He just sits beside me and stares at the mountains too the sun beaming directly into our eyes. Here's my father, talking to me about heartbreak, talking to me in what might be the most tender tone I've ever heard him speak in, since he's usually well-meaning, but brusque and unemotional. Here's my dad comforting me, tears in his eyes. I lean my head on his shoulder. Suddenly I realize he knows what this feels like for me. This grief, he's felt it. He had his heart shattered by my mother and fell down the well of self-pity until he was out of reach, even from those of us who loved him most. Now here he is with me on this stoop, telling me as much, telling me how he let his pain devour him, telling me I'm strong and don't have to be devoured by what the husband did. With my head on his shoulder and the sun in our eyes, we stare out at the mountains in silence. That same vista people in my family have looked at for generations. How many of them sat here like this, their hearts in a million pieces, with no choice but to keep moving forward? Did my grandmother ever feel this way? Is it inevitable that one day Bertie will feel like this? God, I hope not. We sit and stare, and with his arm still around me, my dad says, You're not smoking now, are you? Because it's no good. 
A few weeks later, back in Toronto, I go to my favorite tattoo artist in the market. She designs a beautiful font for the Italian phrase I want tattooed on my right wrist. I need it there, where I can always see it, inked into my skin to remind me where I'm from and also what I'm made of. I have metal. I have fortitude. I come from the soil and the sun and the sand and the ruins. I come from war and poetry and invention. In my blood runs the seas that flow out into the Mediterranean. On my wrist, facing up at me, she tattoos Forza e Coraggio, Strength and Courage. That was Michelle Parisi with an excerpt from her CBC podcast, Alone, a Love Story. Next, a different kind of love story. It's about a mysterious Facebook message, a fleeting romance, and a 50-year-old secret. Here's CBC producer Alexa Chanel Lausanne with that story. Are you okay, hon? It's move-in day for Robin Pitt Taylor and Karen Paul. This couple has an easy rapport joking like they've been together forever. But Robin and Karen will be living together for the first time. For three years, they've been making the seven-hour drive between their homes in Quebec and Ontario. Robin just turned 75. Karen is 71. They're matching in navy-colored sweaters. Robin didn't expect to find love at his age. And he certainly didn't expect it to be with Karen, the same woman he had been on exactly two dates with over 50 years ago who then seemingly vanished into thin air. Their story begins in 1967 in Montreal. Karen is an 18-year-old engineering student at McGill University. Robin is a 21-year-old jazz choreographer. And it was during that period that I had befriended a lad who was doing the windows displays for... Le Chateau, Sarosi's Shoes, uh, and various other stores that were doing a more up-tempo, more creative style of things. Well, all of a sudden, he wants me to meet this person called Karen, and I see her and I go, oh my God, this is, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> when I first met him, he had beautiful, beautiful, deep, dark auburn hair. It was so lovely, and, his hair. And she was very slim, tall, very, very good-looking gal with long, long, bright red hair. You know, right? It was just interesting how I emulated towards him. And, and uh, later that night, we got together intimately. I honestly think that I was very much in love with him then, but, you know, you're young, right? And a short time later, we again got together intimacy and and it was very very emotional for me extremely especially the second time that we when I remember that night so clearly and I actually walked away saying to myself I'm pregnant and then she disappeared I, I mean to say I didn't ever I didn't see her again when I found out that I was pregnant I was in that state of mind where 
if you tell someone like Robin, who's a real swinger in downtown Montreal, you know, that's how I perceived him as being, you know, constantly on the go. And he probably had a trail of women behind him. And so I thought, I can't, uh, I can't tell him that. That's when my friend said, and I asked him, I said, do you see Karen? He said, no. I said, well, I, where's she gone? All of a sudden, I wonder if it was something I said, you know. I didn't want to get in touch with him. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to. And it's funny, that was probably my maturity level, too. And I wanted to stay to myself, private, and I didn't want rejection. Who would want to, you know, go to someone like that who you've been to bed with twice, and then you turn around and you say, by the way, I'm pregnant, and you go, well... Who cares? I don't want to, you know, you take care of the whole situation. That's heavy-duty rejection. So I said, I don't want that. I want to do my thing, and and that's it. She disappeared, so I didn't know. And, she's, and what I understood was, because my friend said, well, don't forget they're sort of an upper-crust family from Westmount, and, you know, you're a downtown guy, Robin, so of course it probably didn't didn't go you know and i did the right thing i did the thing that i thought was the best okay well i guess that's it life happens keep going you know and so keep going i did the conversation one conversation i had with my parents was that i'm pregnant and it was like you know, yeah. out the door, please. My mother threw me out. Uh, well, ex- you know, told me to leave the house because in 1968, it was not the thing to get pregnant. And how, what am I going to tell my friends? Right? We we won't have you live around the house when you're. And and the first thing was that she wanted me to to get uh, an abortion. Um, I I had to get my head together and. I had to figure out what to do. And as I said, I was scared because I did not want to get an abortion because I, that petrified me. An abortion was a back alley situation. So I um, left my house, my home, and I worked as a waitress and I rented a little apartment in Ville Saint Laurent. And then when I no longer could um, work as a waitress because I was showing, I uh, decided to check myself into the unwed mother's home in um, NDG. That was a protection for me, you know. Karen gave birth to a boy on May 16th, 1968. She named him Jonathan. I saw my son, and then he was taken away right away. There was nothing more, because I said, yes, I want him to be adopted. I I don't regret it. I don't regret anything I've done in my life, in my past life. I've always looked at it as an experience for growth. Robin's lives mirrored each other in the years that followed. Both left Montreal. Karen settled in the suburbs outside of Oakville, Ontario, 
Robin ended up in the countryside of Sutton, Quebec. Gradually became a furniture maker and met somebody and married and had two children. I was married to a gentleman for 21 years, had two children. And divorced. That was that. So we finally split up. And by that time, I had actually forgotten about Karen. Karen admits that she didn't think much about Robin. But she did always wonder what happened to her baby, Jonathan. I always wondered what he was like, you know, what had happened to him, but never, ever thought that he would come looking for me in any way, shape, or form. But just shy of his 50th birthday, Jonathan did come looking. Only he was now called Daniel, a name given to him by his adoptive parents. Daniel was raised in Montreal's South Shore after spending the first few years of his childhood in an orphanage. He grew up with a younger brother who was also adopted. Before, I did not care. I did not have any children, and then my children came up, and you just think about these things. You just say, well, maybe it's for the good reasons, I guess. So I sent the few papers I had, and it was just my name, no name, my size, uh, my weight uh, when I was born, and just few knickknacks information, not much. After I received a call two, two years later, and uh, she said, it's my turn. Okay, so they ask you the reason, what's your motivation to do this? I just felt it was a good thing to uh, make a research to for uh, medical reasons, just in case, you know, cancer, whatever problems they could have. Because before, I did not care. In my head, it was, she dumped me, so why should I look for her? It's true. That's, say, why, say, well, you don't know the reasons, but you just live your life and you do your own thing. That's all. I was in shock, but I was also ecstatic. But not shock, I... I felt a sort of draining in my body thinking, oh my goodness, my past is coming back to me. And then I I took a deep breath and I went, huh, I want to meet this kid. I want to know what's I want to know everything about him. I want to know how he was brought up, um, everything. After a few phone calls, Daniel and Karen agreed to meet. And you go and you sit across from a person you've never met before. And you're trying to make friends with that person. You're trying to warm up to that person. And as you're warming up to that person, you can see it in their eyes that they've got a defense mechanism up because you abandoned them. And I saw that in his eyes when he was sitting across from me the first time we met. I saw that look of... Why? 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 Yeah. Why? Why? Why did you why did you give me up? Why did you abandon me? And we did. I did, right? So you want to know why you were left there? I think it's a legitimate question. So I just explained to him why and I was too young. I just couldn't support him and and uh, I thought that he would get a far far better uh, upbringing than I would put him through as a single mom. And uh, I, I have to say there were a lot of tears shed between both of us. I talked a lot of things, yeah, true. After the first meeting, 
what we did is uh, we went to have lunch together oh. and i and i bought i bought uh, i brought my uh, a little photo albums from my well young time to to Yeah, so I wanted to show her my that, life. See? But you know who put that together was it was my mom. Well, my his mother, my adoptive mom. Well, yeah. your mom, mm -hmm. and uh, she put together this book from uh, the time he was a baby yeah. or the time of first adoption, and then uh, a time, to now. Time and it was so interesting because here you would think that she would be threatened by mm. the biological situation being, uh, you know, entering into the picture. But she she put together this whole little album for him to give to me. And I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, it was like... It was nice. It was a... Oh, and we had, we had a lunch together uh, that was quite incredible because we really did connect right away. Mm. And, and it's the best thing. It was just destiny, I guess. C'est juste le destin, c'est tout. Karen felt like she had to contact Daniel's father. It wasn't a phone call. The message comes through on Facebook, and it was, are you the Robin I knew when I was 19 years old? Didn't recognize the name, did not recognize the picture. I didn't, you know, 50-odd years later, and I'm going, oh, who the heck is that person? Who the heck is that? It took me 10 minutes to figure out that it was you and that it was you. And I went, oh, my God, yes, it is. I do. Yes, yes, I am that Robin. And I wrote back and um, said, yes, I am that Robin. How are you? Well, it was that next message that was the kicker. Your son has found his birth mother, me, and now wants to know his, who the birth father is, and it's you, and he has two of his own children. Right. So right away, I'm a grandfather. The truth of the matter was, I was ecstatic. I was so thrilled to hear about this. Oh, my God. Oh, there's Karen. That's who I lost. Oh my gosh, she must. She was pregnant. I know I never knew she was pregnant, and she had the child, and the child's grown up and has his own children. Well, I got so excited about that. Karen had no idea Robin was so excited about her message. She was busy building her relationship with Daniel. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, and it says Robin Pitt Taylor on it. So I answer it. And I say to him very nicely, I can't talk right now because I'm busy. And I and he said, okay, okay, very polite, very polite, you know. So then I left it, and I never called him back. Then he calls me on my cell phone. I'm driving home from work again, and this was probably a week later. And he said, hi, this is Robin. And, you know, he's just so light and easy and very, very, uh, very polite. And I said, uh, you know, Robin, I, I'm just driving home from work and I, I'm, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. And I said, I really would like to call you when I get home. Karen wanted to make sure Robin knew that she wasn't trying to pick up where they left off more than 50 years ago. I, I said, hi, Robin, it's Karen returning your call. So you have a son and that son 
is wanting to get in touch with you because you're the biological father. So could you please call him and here's his number. That was it. And I said, thank you. My phone called back. And yeah, he actually called back and I just, and I, I was annoyed because yeah, I yeah. thought I had, you know, shut the door. So I didn't call my son. I opened the door <laughs> that she thought she'd closed and began to talk. And we talked for two hours. And the next night we talked again for two hours. One night it went till four, five o'clock in the morning. She had to be back up in an hour and running again. My heart began to pound. It was ridiculous. I don't understand it to this day. <laughs> for three months, they talked on the phone every single night. Finally, it was time to meet in person. And I saw him sitting in his car with the goatee, goatee and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And I'm going, <sighs> The two things she disliked the most, of course, was tobacco, the smell of it, and facial hair on a man. And, and then his long hair, and his long hair on top of that. So I thought, oh, well, this is going to be interesting. And That first meeting and first seeing her was a bit of a surprise. And as much as she was shocked to see this, you know, sort of skinny guy sitting in the car with a goatee and a cigarette hanging out of his face, as much as I was surprised to see a short-haired business gal, and yet all of that kind of uh, melted or disappeared. Yeah, it's or, like, it's like you, know. you know, it's like yeah. fate has said to us, yeah. we belong together, and we just have to understand that this is the two of us together. But he did shave off. He did shave off his goatee for me. And then he finally said to me, I'm so going good. to quit smoking. And, and I that's said, it. I have never had a cigarette since. I've been smoking for 54 years. <laughs> Not interested. It just, I've stopped. That's the end of that. Amazing. Their new home is in Sutton, Quebec. It's nestled in the Appalachian Mountain Range in the very southern tip of the province. They live on a swerving dirt road surrounded by trees. Pedro! There's a pond to swim in and plenty of room for their new puppy, Pedro. It was okay that we didn't get together 53 years ago. Even though we may only have 30 years left of our lives, wow, how, how beautiful it is to leave life having 30 or, or how many years of absolute happiness with the partner you really want. And a partner you really love. It's all my and fault. It is it. your fault. <laughs> oh, no. I think I'll have to go now. <laughs> Are you the Robin I knew when I was 19 years old? <laughs> very hard for me I'm sorry I don't know why I'm so moved every time when I think of that and God bless our son for looking for you <laughs> that documentary from the CBC's Alexa Chanel Lausanne
And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story, the New Year's edition. The show is produced by Michelle Parisi, Tanara McLean, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And hey, if you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story, you can help us out by hitting subscribe or saving it to your favorites or tell a friend about us. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Duncan McHugh, Jimmy Gwitch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.